Welcome to 12 Days of Edition Wars, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and playstyles of all of the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't, what led to better games, as well as, yeah, something that kind of didn't. And we talk about it all. This series features a deep dive into the blue-covered DMGR series of books, that is Dungeon Master's Guide Reference. What advice can we take from these books and use in our current games? Well, we're going to find out. And on this first day of Edition Wars, my DM gave to me the Campaign Sourcebook and Catacomb Guide. This second edition AD&D sourcebook was written by Janelle Jaquez and William Connors and published in 1990, just a couple of years, not even a, two years, one year after the release of second edition AD&D. DMGR1 was the first in a series of nine DM-focused books for second edition AD&D, and you might recognize these as the blue faux leather softcover books that were similar to the brown faux leather softcover books that were for particular classes and that those were player-focused, this was the DM-focused set. And of course, I am Sam Dillon, one of your hosts, and my other host who has been patiently listening to me rattle on so far is Brandis. Hello, sir. Howdy, howdy. I will also point out that the uh, the green-covered books, the historicals, ah, yes. were, were also fairly DM-facing. Yes. We won't be covering those uh, this year. Maybe with a lot of fan pressure, we'd consider it in some future year. <laughs> you know when you open a door like that, you've completely – that's it. <laughs> Sorry. So, fan, <laughs> fan pressure and bribery. <laughs> it would take some to have to purchase those. Have you seen the prices they go for? Oh my! I, I had a, a very dear friend, uh, Greg Roth, um, decide one year he's going to buy all the PDFs of all the historicals for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, dude's a mensch. What can I tell you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great deal. And yeah. if you want to try to find the hardcovers, oh, I mean the the the, the hard copies, yeah. forget it. I mean, if if they've got the map with them, they're going for mucho dinero. You're uh, you're gonna I've got, yeah. I've got three or four of the whole run. Do you? Nice. Yeah, yeah. I've got I've got definitely the Celts, and mm-hmm. I think one or two others, uh, somewhere in there, maybe as many as three others. But yeah, yeah, you're not you're not joking around about that price. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's it's one of those insane bonkers holy cow what happened kind of things. I think they just had smaller print runs uh than a lot of the other books and so there just aren't as many around and especially not in good condition with the map. Mm. Well, it's it's also part of the ancient truth that uh second edition published too many settings uh-huh. but now they're not now they're bank if you happen to yeah. pick them up back then. Yeah. Uh, like I don't know if you know about it, but uh, this Planescape set that somebody sent me, uh, huh, somebody no, in this case is Sam. Listeners, <laughs> it's Sam. Um, yes. Yeah. That's a. Uh, yeah. That's not joking around. Well, you know, when you're a Planescape fan, it's nice to have the original box. For not, sure. Not a PDF. Not the. You know, you can get that printed for our for our listeners. You can actually get that printed in hardcover from the DMs Guild. And it's not a bad. It's not a bad reprint. It's it's all in one hardcover. It's not bad. But yeah. if you're a real Planescape aficionado, it's really nice to have that the, box. Uh, the print on demand of Hellbound. I actually have in my hands right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really good. It's really really good. Uh, so nice. if you if you're interested in second ed Planescape material, uh, I can tell you at least that the Hellbound POD is worth getting. Very strong. Nice. Anyway, anyway, this has been DM's Guild Minute. Hey. <laughs> we're, we're, not, we're not paid by them in any way. We're just uh, lovers of D&D who know that uh, some of the things that they 
send off get well, printed up pretty nice. So. In fairness, we're not paid for this advertisement. We are paid for the paid by DMs Guild. True. So we other products. Go right. buy them, but, the, by the but those way. are yeah, those those are yeah, anyway, those are our own products, okay. not not second edition products that were produced by other people. Anyway. <laughs> My products are okay. more second rate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay sure yeah not true but whatever <laughs> does not compute does not compute uh, <laughs> so let's get into this book what do you think sir well uh so this is the very first of them and what we're going to see in this book is very much just uh the 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 very best of the cutting room floor from what should have been in the second at DMG. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's a lot of really good stuff here. Not all of it has aged the very best. Um, mm-hmm. There's definitely some stuff that you know is is the attitude of its time. Um, it's got a copyright date of 1990, um, and so it's. Very soon after the release of the Holy Trinity um, and the Complete Fighter, maybe it might have been more uh, complete books, but we're still talking very early on, and mm-hmm. a lot of it's very good, like nitty gritty technique stuff, um, and giving the DM a script for game situations, and uh, then we get into other kinds of, of things and it wraps up in some uh, very timeless uh, campaign structure and dungeon structure advice mm-hmm. uh, and, and world building advice. So right. I don't, I think that what we're going to find is that the, the structural stuff that is in the, the back part of the book is going to stand up really well. Some of the, how do you how do you relate to your players stuff a little dated yeah also because it was published in 1990 which is 31 years ago for those of you keeping count the hell uh, do you say i know right i mean that was yesterday i haven't graduated high school yet cuz i graduated in 1991 so if it was yesterday i haven't graduated high school <laughs> in other words folks i had this book when i was in high school anyway so Here's here's what it says in the introduction. There's a small half-page introduction, and it, and it tells us about the book, but here is the important phrase from that. It says, in this book, we will share with you a wide array of tips and techniques for weaving the tales of adventure, which fill your active imagination, into games which will grab the attention of your players. If you are new to the fine art of dungeon mastering, you will find that the information in this book can make you seem like a pro who's been doing it for years. If you are a pro who's been doing this for years, you'll find hints to help you get the most out of your existing campaign. That's the point of this book. And so we're going to go through this and we're going to see if they succeed, or I should say we're going to see where they succeed and where they don't quite hit the mark. Yep. Um, a lot of the just attitude stuff I'm talking about is, you know, how much the DM needs to sort of take a, take a more forceful hand with things and mm-hmm. uh, like cut off conversation. It, like, 
the, right. the, the GM to player relationship expectations have, have really softened, and that's all to the good uh, over the last well thirty one years. Right. So the the first chapter is called logistics of play, and what it's really going to look at is how do you set up an environment and get ready to play the game. There's a gaming etiquette section. Um, there's an administration from the DM's perspective section. There's a general delivery section. And the tone here in this chapter is very, the, the voice is very entertaining and conversational. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it has some, some kind of what you might consider uh, light one-liners in it that are trying to entertain you as you read. Uh, yep. Some of them are great. Some of them are not. <laughs> um, the 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 whole thing starts with gaming etiquette, and is is really talking about what you need to do to actually start prepping to run a game. And one of the one of the things that I that I that I highlighted or that I made a note about in this section is in the be prepared section. Because it's, it's sort of the beginning of this section, and it says, Nothing spoils a game more quickly than a DM who hasn't studied his material beforehand and doesn't know the gist of his adventure, if not all the details. And that right there tells you sort of the ethos that the writers are coming from. That uh, I, I'm going to need this. Yeah taken from the top this time just you're singing it to a bunch of hyenas all right Can you do it that way <laughs> um but you get my you get my point right the, they're they're telling you right up front what their idea of the appropriate amount of work for the dm to do is and and that sort of follows through the the rest of the ch- of this chapter they do really hammer home some of their points but they're coming from a a relatively specific mindset um and i don't necessarily disagree with a lot of what they say, but a couple of the things that they say are a little closer to one end of the spectrum than another. And I, mm-hmm. and I don't necessarily, I would probably move the dial a little bit back towards the other end. If, if you get my drift. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I find this one to be pretty, um, pretty acceptable. Um, especially if you're talking about working with published material. Mm-hmm. For sure, um, yeah. And you know, this is staying fairly broad. It's going to get. It's going to drill down on this exact mm-hmm. point in a little bit, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is which is nice. You um, actually, you bring up a good point. I do want to point out that this book is not written from the perspective that every DM is purchasing and running published modules. They they hit both tones. They mention yep. often if you're talking, you know, they mention the differences often between if you're running a published adventure compared to if you're creating your own. So yep. it's it's not a singular focus here. Um, and you know, talking about how to organize material for use, that is a great question. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of one of the great unsolved questions of of game running, in in my opinion, mm-hmm. um, yeah, as yeah, and make it a fundamentally disorganized yeah. mind. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> they they get into more detail with that as well. One of the things I thought interesting un, under the hosting a game uh, moniker or title, they it says it's the last sentence actually in that in that uh, section. It says, if at all possible, arrange for the DM to be seated at a separate table in the gaming area. It's very important that the DM keep his game notes and maps out of the player's sight. That's a that's a fascinating idea. Like, <laughs> and you know, I, I agree with hey, you don't want to necessarily just have your your dungeon map lying there in, in plain view, but we we made DM screens for a reason, y'all. They had yeah. those in nineteen ninety, right? <laughs> right, yes. I I, w- I will say that part of what, what led to this is they were talking about playing in a relatively public area, either in a game store or in like the, the common area of a dorm. Right. Where they mention, you know, making sure that you're not disturbing other people, but then also if you can set up the area however you want, this might be an option. And I got to tell you, I have never seen a game run where the DMs at a completely different table. So, like I've I've seen tables put together where one right. is sort of set the right. other way. So the DM has a wider area and the, I've yep. seen that, but that, but like, that's not what it sounds like they're talking about. They actually yeah. say at a separate table. <laughs> yeah. It just sounds weird to me. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm personally just very confused about this use of a table. You should, you should be using <laughs> right. your Roll20 client to do this. Yes. What's, what are we talking right. about here? Right. Well, I, so I, I don't understand why uh, Connors and Jayquiz wouldn't explained yeah. it in in terms that everyone would understand right about, so like yeah. maybe you use fantasy grounds <laughs> is it albert rodeo what are you doing is it just a yeah. zoom call it's very barbaric right. but all right mm-hmm. yeah so so as my as my co-host so uh so um oh what's the word uh uh it's so subtle. It's such a subtle point he's making. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that's, that's me. Uh, there was no internet to speak of <laughs> when this was when this was written. There was right. an internet, folks, but uh, not in the way that we know it now. Um, so, of course, I, I did. I did. Uh, let me put it this way: as I read through this chapter to to prep for this episode. It's been a long time since I read this book, but as I was reading through this, I did think to myself, part of the reason this reads a little bit dated is just simply the technology that they don't mention. And it's pretty amazing that the absence or omission of something can date a book so strongly. Oh, for sure. Well, I mean, I think it's really important to keep in mind that the hobby of tabletop gaming was 16 years old when this book came out, mm-hmm. right? 16 years yeah. old. And so we've had almost twice as much time since then as it was old at the time. Right. Yeah. So just the, the, the art is in a lot of ways still in its infancy. Mm-hmm. Like now in 2021, it's as developed as it's yet been, but it's still in its infancy. We have no idea what's coming in you know, 10 or 20 or 30 years that will upend everything. And that's exciting and fascinating. But right. you know, just the integration of technology with uh, 
with the game is it, it has barely begun at all in 1990. Like maybe someone has a laptop mm-hmm. that they read the map off of before they draw it on their uh, their Chessex mat or whatever. I assume Chessex was doing uh, wet erase mats in 1990. I actually have no idea. I started gaming <laughs> in 93 and yeah. didn't discover Chessex for several more years after that. Um, but I don't yeah. know. And I did not have a Chessex mat at this point. We were still using paper, um, graph paper. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so, we get to the section about courtesy, yeah. courtesy to hosts and courtesy to others. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this ends up just fine. Oh yeah, of course. The, the, the rules of courtesy mm-hmm. we have thousands of years with. Sure, they are not changing. Yes, right, right. Uh, and and in fact, so to, to give it to give this uh, some props as well. Uh, in the areas where it, e- even in the area where it's lacking right now, because the hosting a game section is all about where you go to host, like who's hosting. It shouldn't always be the DM's responsibility to be the one to set up their house and host the game or whatever. Um, that is also still really good advice. It's just that right now, <laughs> for the past two years, uh, many of us haven't had a home game in, in a while. Um and so that's also kind of about courtesy, right? Yep. Courtesy of making sure the DM isn't the only one that's doing things to plan for the game. That's mentioned several times throughout this chapter, um, which actually brings me to a point I wanted to mention, and I didn't mention in the introduction uh, when we were first talking about this. This book is written in the introduction. It sounds like it's written for DMs to buy and read and use to help their game and to help their player management and all that stuff. But there is a lot in this, at least in this first couple of chapters that is actually written about players that players should be reading. So when you get to a header called be kind to the DM, I'm pretty sure that is not DM facing advice. Right, exactly. And so it's a little bit interesting that they don't actually just say right up front, Hey, by the way, if you're a player, feel free to read like, you know, the first four chapters, right? And leave the leave the maps and whatnot alone and don't read those, but re- you know, I mean, look, in first edition they used to say, "Hey, players aren't even supposed to open the DMG," right? So, I mean, right. that's not unheard of to say that, but that sounds like it was kind of the expectation here that players aren't going to, when you read the intro anyway, players aren't going to read this, but there's a lot of good stuff in here for players. So it's kind of, a, it was a kind of an interesting dissonance for me to, you know, for me to uh, see that. And, and it's really striking actually. Oh, I, I definitely agree with you. Um, I, I, I'm amused by a wise DM will encourage his players to keep verbal expression of excitement or dismay. Uh, to conversational <laughs> decibel levels. Uh, good luck. And I would not. I would not yeah. say I have seen yeah, that yeah. be the most successful thing if you have <laughs> right, murdered someone's right. character right in the face. Um, yeah. Though yeah. that also reminds me of another of the very dated things about this book. Uh, it uses the pronoun assumptions mm-hmm. laid out in the second ed um, player's handbook and DMG right. of. Um, he is a uh, neuter pronoun and that reads strange now Mm -hmm. because that sort of grammatical theory has been widely discarded. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, although not maybe not as widely as as one would think. I, I was playing a board game with uh, my wife today, and I was reading the rules, and it used he. And I, I just instinctively, as I'm reading, because I'm generally the rules reader as we're setting up the game and whatnot, mm-hmm. and I just in- instinctively change it to they, mm-hmm. right? Um, and in a board game, it's very easy to write rules. Uh, maybe very easy is too strong a way to say it, but it, it's relatively easy to write rules that are completely neutral. You use player or one or they, and you can even do it without using the the plural they. I know some people have a problem with that, although whatever. Um, right. But in in a in a role playing sense, also we've come to realize when I say we, I mean everyone, that it's kind of easy to do that too if you just learn a little bit and try to make that part of what you're what you're doing um but in 1990 this was not at all on the minds of anybody that was writing role-playing games right and and one of the um one of the things that happens in fifth edition is absolutely wherever possible they use the second person Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it is is addressing the reader by addressing the reader right and i think that's great Anyway, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, so the next the next part I I sort of laughed at it. It talks about pre rolling characters and that and I have I have something to say about the, this whole thing. It's uh, that uh, this advice is basically in direct opposition to the modern idea of a session zero, yep. where all yep, the exactly. players create characters together with the DM present and they talk about the world and the setting and different elements of backgrounds and all that stuff. None of that is here. Basically, this says uh, create your PCs ahead of time. And, uh, you know, don't waste time. You know, you don't want anybody to be waiting around just doing nothing while a couple of people are creating characters. Um, And then then it has this sentence. If the DM waits until the game session to roll up new player characters, valuable game time is wasted. And I am like, what? The DM? The DM is rolling up the characters? I, I think that's not so, actually what they mean. I think it is an infelicitous wording that means the DM is doing the waiting. The players are doing the rolling. The, the DM has it, not prodded them. Like, like I know what it says on the page. I, I see it no, on the I, I, But I disagree with you. I think it's not a mistake. I think it's mm. the expectation that it's it's more like a first edition kind of expectation no, where I, the I, I DM don't. is rolling the stats. No, I think uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure the DMG is quite clear about who's rolling the dice on character generation. I am pretty yeah, sure that's just I mean, the wording. For, it's just, it's just mean. means to the DM should tell the players to roll up their PCs yeah. and not wait. Yeah, maybe it's just, it's just worded funny yeah. then. Cause it, I find really that is. hilarious. I find that hilarious. Um, I, I had to read it twice. Cause I thought, wait, does it, is it, does it mean, is it talking about NPCs or like, but no, it says player characters. So yeah, very, very interesting, uh, Right. Uh, I think I think that as much as anything, you're talking about the DM observing. You, mm-hmm. you know, the yeah. sense that like you need the, the roles need to be done in front of the DM, so that right, right. The DM knows well, that's fair. That's why I was thinking it meant the DM's rolling the stats, sure. right? Sure, sure. Um, because I have because never of the met idea a player who would put up with that crap. Right, Never but was. but but it's also the it's the idea of you don't want a player you know players to show up and the, all the stats are eighteens, right? No, I swear I rolled, <laughs> right? Like no, yeah. Um, I, yeah have, so. I have a friend who would uh, be very disappointed with the characters that she wound up playing. <laughs> like, 
because <laughs> yeah because she actually would roll uh substantially too many 18s in mm-hmm. ju- that's just her fair roll right like, like consistently it's bonkers <laughs> good good uh, dice good dice luck there uh, yeah, yeah rng jesus loves her a lot <laughs> Um, the Jamie Tart of uh, character generation. <laughs> if you watch Ted Lasso, um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so opening ceremonies is is a nice idea um, that you don't have a lot of say in. It's going to happen if you if you let it or not. So you might as well right. let it. Yeah. Um, y- yes, and, snacks and are good. Th- Everyone likes snacks. Yeah. That's, the that's the thing the about section says. The thing about opening ceremonies, though, that's interesting is it's basically giving the DM permission to allow that little social time to occur and then setting the expectation that at some point the DM is going to say, hey, okay, we're going to start. Come over here and sit in your spot and we're starting. So everybody kind of it's this is the same. Okay, (laughs) this is the analogy. Okay, when the kindergarten teacher walks into the room and flashes the lights off and on. And everybody sits up straight and looks forward because they know class is about to start, right? That's what the opening ceremonies is about. Yeah, the, you, the house dims the lights. Yep. Right. Yeah. And and so you know it's the hey, there's a time and place for everything, and here I'm making a separation between the time where you can chat and now the time where you can't chat, which is fine, um, but my games are generally more loosey goosey than that, right? Yep. <laughs> So, anyway. which which has a lot to do with why uh, you know an adventure that says it is for uh, f- should take about four hours to complete. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Is ten good? Is ten good with you? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and then and then they talk about something. I agree with you. The refreshments are good, but then they talk about something in the distraction section that I have never seen nor experienced directly. It says. If young children must be present during the game session, the players may wish to contribute toward the hiring of a babysitter. Really? (laughs) Like, I've never had a a game group where everybody agreed to get together and buy a babysitter. That would be a delightful idea. Wouldn't that be awesome? (laughs) If in these benighted times, you could get a babysitter. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Right, but I mean, uh, like scheduling games is yeah such a different proposition once you have kids, mm-hmm. and like uh, for us to run in person games, uh, we get uh, babysitting from my parents. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of our other babysitting options have sort of aged out of having time to babysit kind right. of things, mm-hmm. so it's rough. Um, I mean, but, I I really I think it's a great idea. But but also, this is a place where, for some reason, they don't mention players being distracted by their cell phones. I don't get it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, like uh, 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 while well, a ball game or loud music is going on in the background. <laughs> sure. Yes. Uh huh. Those yeah, are obvious yeah, distractions. Sure. Mm-hmm. Not yep. not mm-hmm. a great danger now, right. but yeah, by a cell phone. Yeah. Uh, but but also like. Uh, my my opinion on this has changed a good bit. Um, I have a non-trivial number of players 
who have ADHD and they need to absorb their attention in something so mm-hmm. that they can engage with the game. And so uh, I need to be aware of that and mm-hmm. uh, like it's going to change how I read them when they're not the one they're not the center of the attention but right. th- that's part of the responsibility of like knowing and being compassionate toward your players um, that has yeah. just really changed since since this was written mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like yeah the whole idea of the ADHD diagnosis was only barely starting to be a thing when this was written. Right. Right. Well, and you know, the, the tone of this is very much though it it wavers a little bit in some areas and it gives a little in some areas. The tone of this is very much the DM is in control of the game. And part of the job is to keep the players in line. And that's a little bit of a antiquated feeling, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, that doesn't really apply to, or it's not really appropriate for gamers today. Um, and I, I don't know if it was appropriate back then, but it certainly was the expectation back then. So uh, definitely there is some datedness here. Um, but in general, the ideas are solid, right? I mean, the the point of the thing is be prepared, try to keep everybody on track. It's the DM's job to make sure that everybody is engaged at the appropriate times, which means you have to think about things like reducing distractions. And it doesn't address things like ADHD or, of course, more modern technology, but in spirit, it is addressing that because it's basically saying you need to be aware of distractions. Yep. I definitely agree with that. And it also admits <laughs> the DM is human and will make mistakes yep. uh, in the, in the, in the one paragraph or two paragraphs here that are explicitly written to the player. <laughs> yep. Um, this was the sentence that I read that what I just stated was a sentence that I read that made me realize that yes, this book really is actually written for players and DMs. At least the first four chapters are Um, because they're talking directly to players here as well, not just directly to DMs. So I wish it had been the idea of just showing this one page to their players or something. I don't know. Yeah, or or like, oh, you know, you're going to have a social contract where, you know, the DM is going to tell the players this, or it's going to be part, you know, print out this two pages or, or yeah, copy these two pages or whatever. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Um, Yeah, interesting. Uh, On your mimeograph machine. Yes, yes. Yes. On your make a a ditto. That's what we should call it. Make a ditto. (laughs) And then you will telegraph it to the... No, yes. wait, too far. <laughs> <laughs> then it moves um, on to the administration portion. Yeah, this is this is interesting um, because it makes a lot of different potential assumptions about like your gaming community structure. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not actually saying this is the way it works. It's saying here's a bunch of different things you could do Right. That 
are, are all pretty viable and some things you might need to do to adapt to that. Right. Um, some of the... Like, we, we covered shared world and shared DMing duties uh, in our, our episode with... Um, is our episode with Enrique, maybe. Yeah. Uh, either, either Enrique or, yeah. or Jared, one of those. Mm-hmm. Because this kind of discussion is still very current. Right. Um, trying to like break out of the, uh, oh, I'm a forever DM mold. Right. 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 Well, and, that, and then that presents this laughable sentence. What happens when several people in a group want to DM? And I know lots of people who would say that has never happened. They are the forever DM because nobody else wants to DM. Yeah. So uh, presenting this as if it's an extremely common thing is, is kind yeah. of funny to me. Um, <laughs> so, so I'm in a bunch of different gaming groups that have sort of only me as overlap at this point. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that's an inter- gives an interesting cross section, you know, um, in, uh, in one of the groups, like I think the the person actually doing the GMing and I are the only people at the table who do a lot of GMing. Well, maybe one of the other players. Um, and then in another game, I'm I'm running like uh, only one of the other players does a ton of GMing, uh, but it's Colin. He does a ton of GMing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in sort of what I think of as my main gaming group. Uh, the one that I've been have my really long running campaign set in, uh, most of those players GM at some point or other. Some right. of them GM a lot, so it's just it's a huge variability, mm-hmm. you know, community by community. Yeah. So this section's pretty good because it it actually says you know well here's how to make that work if you want it yep. to be in the same setting and if you don't that's fine. Um, but here's, but here's how you might make that work. And it gives a couple of different suggestions. Um, and it, and then it talks about drawbacks, which is good, right? Like just to even have, um, a discussion about, well, you know, they're not presenting it as, Hey, this is just going to be, you know, the bee's knees here. It's going to be all be perfect. And, you know, there's nothing to worry about. It says, well, you know, here's some options. And by the way, there are some drawbacks and, and it talks about, uh, you know, having, uh, a single player with lots of different characters and different drawbacks and advantages to that. And what happens if you have a DM uh, person uh, that brings a a player from a PC from another campaign into your campaign world and, you know, what to look out for and what might cause you grief and uh, you know, things like that. Um, And then it has this, this sentence here uh, that, that, is speaking about a very specific style of play that it implies is enforced, right? Like it says, if a player insists on playing his characters out of character, as in this is a, this is a player who has a lot of different characters, okay? 
if they insist on playing their characters out of character, in other words, they play it all like it's the same person, or they try to use the benefits of one of them, oh, I'll give you this, and you're going to, you know, like, PC1 gives PC2 their magic wand, and then PC2 is going to take that on the next adventure or whatever, like, those sorts of things. If they're doing those out of character kind of things, it says remove one or more secondary characters from his control and make them into DM controlled NPCs for the remainder of the adventure. And that is a very specific style of enforcement <laughs> of a, well, of an idea, but so, but, so sort of like the idea of playing multiple characters in the same adventure. Whoa. Hey, whoa, let's whoa there is, is my reaction. And I have a campaign where, you know, most players have multiple characters. It's just within the same adventure. Mm-hmm. Hold on now, like, right? But e- but very, very one procession kind of kind of campaign. Sure, sure. But even it just, yeah, this is just the end of this whole section. So for me, the wording is very much like if the PCs, if the players aren't playing the PCs correctly, take them and make them DM controlled NPCs. Right. It, it's it's a it's a very like forceful phrasing. Right. But it's like, well, and this is this is where I was going, is that it sounds like a very punitive, enforce this rule kind of style. However, the point is actually well taken that yeah. you you need to be specific about what the boundaries are if somebody is playing multiple characters, whether it's in the same adventure or not, if it's in the same setting with the same DM, then there, there needs to be a set of boundaries there that the player understands. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, but I mean, a, a player expecting to definitely get to play multiple characters in a single session. Uh, yeah, that, that feels weird to me. Th- there, there's yeah. a very narrow time and place for that. And mm-hmm. that time and place is Ars Magica. <laughs> um, I, I have had it be okay uh, about twice in more than a hundred sessions of my homebrew campaign mm-hmm. uh, for like, a situation has come up where one of rabbit's characters that she's not playing right now is actually the subject matter expert on that topic. Okay. So they go talk to her character. She switches characters for the duration of that conversation then switches back. Mm-hmm. That's fine. It's yeah. really fine. Um, there's another situation where um, like Colin was playing his paladin that day, but his cleric was one of the only people who could uh, cast Revify. You mm-hmm. know what? It's fine. Right. It's really fine yeah. to have, like, because of where they were, like, where the, the fight is taking place, it was reasonable that his cleric was right there. So mm-hmm. we just yeah. had him come out and do the thing and then walk back off camera. Great. No worries. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, in my in my game with only two players... Uh, my two teenagers that were new to D and D when I started running the game, uh, two play two PCs is really hard. That's a it's hard to run that adventure because they wanted like a standard D and D adventure, right? I yep. could have tailored something for for two PCs that would have been you know would have been fine for me, but they wanted something with an adventuring party. So I basically gave them sidekicks 
right? Well, so their first in the first session, I just played extra people, right? Because mm-hmm. they needed to learn their characters. And then in the second, third session, I gave them kind of basically what amounts to a sidekick. And then after the fourth or fifth session, they started actually wanting to do more demanding things, right? I mean, we're talking about sh- some short sessions here, right? But mm-hmm. they wanted to do more. So I basically let them build out those sidekicks into full-fledged PCs of the same level as they were. And they run those PCs, but they have their main PC, and then they have, like, the extra person. And basically, they do all the mechanical stuff for that person, but I do the role-playing, right? Like, if they say, oh, well, this person, you know, one of them's name is Flint. Oh, if Flint's going to go over here, Flint wouldn't do that. He's not going to do that. No, you can't sure. just determine he's going to go do this, you know, but that's the same thing I would do with the hireling or henchman, right? Sure. It's just yep. that in this case, they're playing the mechanical bits of those PCs. Sure. Sure. So it's a little bit different, but it's kind of the same sort of idea. Um, but I, w- I wouldn't, now that they've been doing this for several sessions, I wouldn't take those PCs and say, okay, nope, you totally screwed up. Now these are my NPCs. Ha ha ha. You know, like, sure. That's just not the way to handle that situation. Right. Yep. I guess what I'm saying is this particular section, I feel like needs a little bit more development in terms of what it's trying to say, or maybe it's just that it's dated. All right, I see it as being dated. Its heart is in pretty much the right place, mm-hmm. but the mm-hmm. language is coming across to a reader in 2021 as very my way or the highway. And right. I I really suspect that if you sat down with the the authors mm-hmm. at the time, they'd have said that's not really what I mean. Right. Sure. I, I don't. I yeah. don't know that. Right. I don't know either mm-hmm. the person. Right. It's not how this yeah. works. Uh, I'm just guessing yeah. that that really uh, it is uh, you know compassionate people phrasing something a, a little bit harshly, mm-hmm. uh, in part because this is less harsh than Gary would have written it. You know. Right. Four or five years earlier. Right. You right. know what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, and that's why my that's why I that's why my actual note that I wrote is this sounds like a very punitive thing, but the point of it is is well taken. Like they're making a very good point. It's just yeah. that yeah, the wording is a bit strong. <laughs> I mean, when we covered the second ed DMG, we talked about how toned down and sort of more cooperative uh, Zeb Cook's language is. Mm-hmm. Than Gary's, right? That, that, that's a big, a big thing, and I think that this is still part of that trend line, but it's not sort of fully erased. Mm-hmm. Sure, um, sure. So, visitors from other worlds is <laughs> yeah something I would personally find very frustrating because yeah. my homebrew setting doesn't have any standard D and D races. Even my humans are quite different from. Cordian to humans. So if you want to rebuild your character in this setting, that's okay, but it's a new character. I'm not dealing with off world or canon. That's not, that's not my life. Yeah. So the thing I like about this section is that it presents this issue that, you know, that this, this player, new player joins a group and brings, uh, you know, their, their, you know, high level, 
PC from a different campaign. And um, what it's actually saying is, here's what to think about so you can make a good decision about yep. this question, right? It's not just saying, don't do it. It's a bad idea. It rarely works out well. You're going to have all kinds of problems, and here are the problems. It says, well, let's talk about what you might run into when or if you were choose to say yes to this person. Here are the things to think about, right? And you get to make your own decision, which I appreciate that. Um, it, it it does address mostly magic items and and how you could disallow them or what you should do to basically t- tell the player, uh, you know, no or yes or a qualified no or a qualified yes or you know what I mean. Um, it's yeah, it, right. it's 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 interesting. Uh, but if but when I think about like A D and D, right? If I'm thinking about A D and D, this is a really valid section. Because if somebody was just run starting to run second edition and somebody came in with their 14th level or fifth level or whatever level PC from a first edition game that had been on all these adventures, this would be something to think about. Right. Right. Um, well, and the, the, chap- the, the, sorry, the paragraph that starts disallow non-standard magical items. Mm-hmm. The logic being that the physical laws of the two prime material planes are not similar enough to allow the new magic items to function. That's really funny to me. Um, like, <laughs> Why? So, so, so wasn't out yet, <laughs> right? But, but, like, because Second Ed is going to be an edition that plays so much with mm-hmm. the interstitial yeah. settings, right? And yes. and yeah. multiple primes in mm-hmm. in their separate crystal spheres, and also because we're now in fifth edition, and uh, it, it doesn't take a lot of reading of Tasha's to realize that we are moving into an era of like multiple primes being mm-hmm. being valid, a, a much greater multiversal interest. Um, I, I, I'm really pleased that the Marvel Universe is is following uh, you know, Watsi's lead here. I think it's very smart. <laughs> I'm sure that's how that played out. Yeah, right. Creatively. They, they, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, but that's part of the reason why I made a big point at the beginning of this about what year this was published and yeah. how soon or how it was really following on the heels of the, the core three being released that it's only been a year since second edition was released 1989. Okay. And this is 1990. And even if, you know, even if it's been 18 months, it's basically been a year and there hasn't been all of the time for all of the second edition setting explosion to occur. Right. Uh, and if you think about what this was coming from in first edition, there was Greyhawk and there was Mistara. If you mixed your basic and, and your AD and D. Okay. And then there was the forgotten realms. And while each of those had similar flavors, they also were just, taken as very different places and there really wasn't a way to get from one to the other but in second edition when they started producing all of these settings and all of these setting uh, and, and and all of the the sort of uh class guides and all of those things they start to you can sort of see the progression because as time goes on they start to realize that they're doing they're doing this right they're doing all these settings then we have planescape we have dark sun we have the forgotten realm still we have greyhawk still we have 
uh, Mistara sort of still, at least until 1991 when the Rules Cyclopedia comes out. We have Spelljammer, which comes out and then allows us a way to really make it easy to connect these worlds, theoretically speaking, along with Planescape, which makes it quote, quote unquote easy to connect these worlds. That didn't exist yet. Right. Yep. We also have birth, birthright. You know, I mean, that, like I'm yep. leaving out a whole bunch of settings, right? Well, all those oh, historical yeah. books haven't been out yet, right? Like I'm leaving a ton of stuff out. Council um, of Worms. Council of Worms. Yeah. I mean, so I, I guess what I'm saying is this was written so close to the DMG that yep. that stuff hasn't happened yet. And yep. so they really are in the probably the train of thought of a setting is a setting is a setting and never the twain shall meet, right? Like this setting is this setting and it's not necessarily going to – it might have some overlap because they're both fantasy, but that's where it ends. Um, and we know that that's not actually where second edition went. Second edition went with the setting explosion. And so this – this advice is dated, and, and that particular sentence sounds weird to us, but at the time, it probably didn't sound weird at all. Like, I don't well, remember – when I read this in 1990, I wasn't thinking to myself, huh, that's really weird. I thought, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Well, like, they're, they're also saying all of your homebrew settings are just a different prime. It's fine, which mm-hmm. is the line that Fifth Ed is taking. Right. Um, and – like um, they're not really saying everything is different between two primes. Just oh, you have a non-standard magic item. I need a reason mm-hmm. to say no to that because right. you right. So like that's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Right. Um, yeah. If you need to justify this in character for some stupid reason, here you go. Here's here, yeah. we got you, buddy. Right. Right. Um, Right. Well, because also, you know, this as much as everything I just said about settings, whatever, but also this is a time when people are writing into Sage Advice and into, you know, uh, the different, you know, articles and everything in Dragon Magazine and in Polygon and all, all of these, you know, and saying things like, well, what if this happens? And what if this happens? What would be the official ruling? And so yep. they're trying to give a sort of official way of making it sound like it makes sense to not yep. allow that magic item to work, which is that's, that's good. I like that. Yep. Um, so the next section is new players and I don't know about your gaming groups. I've always had to deal with high churn. Um, mm-hmm. Just like if you work in the gaming industry, um, people lose their jobs and move. It's a thing. Right. Yeah. Like, well, I had, so, my high churn comes from the fact that I uh, moved around a lot uh, because of different mm-hmm. schools I was attending and and different, you know, go to college, go to grad school, go to, you know, grad school again in a different place and go, you know, like all of those sorts of things, um, plus working in between and living here for a year and living there. So the thing is, I didn't have a lot of churn when I was in a place and I had a group. It didn't have a lot of churn. I was the one leaving, right? Like, <laughs> you know, like I would leave yeah. then two years later or whatever. And so the churn was me, not sure. the player, not the other players. So, sure. But yeah, I totally hear, I hear what you're saying. Um, Folks, this is but, why it's important yeah. to marry a gamer. Uh, <laughs> so they'll move with you. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. No, that's true. That is true. Um, uh, what do you think about, the advice it gives 
to basically separate the newbies and the experienced players and let the experience let the newbies play their characters for a few sessions so that they can basically have that brand new wonderment that that we all had when we were first starting right the the idea that experienced players would ruin that right um, for the for the newbies i i think you have to know your table um I've in my long running campaign, I've had first time players mm-hmm. uh, who had never so much, so much as picked up dice before, and they sat down with everyone else, you know, right in the middle of an adventure, and it was fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've had experienced players bring in, you know, new starting characters and have a a level gap of as much as five or six levels. Mm-hmm. And it was fine. Fifth edition, in particular, is yeah. But here, here it's here it's it's not it's talking, talking about, about levels, players, though. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I actually was talking about new players, um, just completely new to the game. Um, seeing what high level characters can do is also a source of potential wonder, mm-hmm. because you're seeing the kinds of cool, weird problems you could hope to have, like. The, mm-hmm. the aspirational sense is different, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Like, just as a hook to get you to want to keep playing. Um, right. But, you know, that isn't for every group. And saying, hey, we need to, like, you know, train up this new player and, and help them get into the game. So let's all roll up some low-level characters to, to play with them for a bit is super reasonable. That That's... But, you know, we can go yeah. ahead and normalize that also. Because here's here's the framing just for the audience. It says, Every player remembers his first encounters with fantasy role-playing when nobody really knew what was going on or which monster was which, but gosh, wasn't it great? Throwing greenhorns in with veteran players ruins that journey of wonder feeling. The vets will be spouting game-speak jargon and rolling dice without explaining themselves, and the new guys will feel lost and worthless. Like if your players are rude, then yes. Right. Well, that's why I was asking you how you felt about this particular, like uh, the framing to me. um, I don't. So here's the thing is that for me, it's not the, I'm going to, you know, the, the experienced players are going to ruin it, ruin the journey, you know, that, that wondrous journey feeling. It's that the biggest uh, problem that I've, ever had to deal with in terms of experienced players and new players in the same game is the, the experienced players saying, Oh, you should do this. Cause your character's good at that. See this right here. Right. The quarterback rather than right. Rather than let the person make their own mistakes and decisions and discover on their own, what they're good at, or if they like playing that kind of character or whatever. But the thing is that anytime that's ever happened where I was the DM, I put the kibosh on that right away. Sure, right. Sure, sure. Let them play their character. Right. right? If they ask you I for mean, help, give them their options, but let them play their characters. I've been in groups where everyone at the table was, you know, a twenty-year veteran of gaming, and there were still people who wanted to aggressively quarterback mm-hmm. other people at the table. Sure. And that's not great. It's right. not great. Yeah. Um so so you absolutely do have to 
like figure out what the player needs to feel supported and feel confident making choices because mm-hmm. the space between explaining someone's choices to them and telling them what to do can be an awfully fine line, but it's a really important one. Right. Right. Yeah. And sometimes of an experienced player, just because they're experienced, isn't very good at that. They can't say, well, here are your options. What they would say is, well, here's what I would do. Yeah. Right. And they might not even try to be trying to be forceful about it or trying to tell that, that other player what to do, but that's, they don't really, you know, many, many, many people are not natural teachers. They don't know how to frame uh, a constructive set of choices without making one seem like the best or without only having one, right? Yeah. But, <laughs> um, but like you're also absolutely right. People do need to learn how to keep their mouths shut and just, right. hey, if that's not a great choice, I bet they find it out fast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So, and, yeah. and so, you know, that's, I, I thought, I thought the framing of this particular section was interesting and odd, but you know, I mean, I guess I appreciate it. I don't know <laughs> if, yeah. if, b- because it, it feels like it's not framed exactly right. It feels dated. Yep. Right. Uh, and then we have hosting one shots. Um, and like, cousin Bob from Muncie, C- cousin Bob from Muncie is, is it, w- w- what what? But yeah, if, I guess if the game started in you know Middle America, then all right, mm-hmm. sure, right. Um, and yeah, I mean it's it's yeah. decent advice. It's fine. Uh, right. It's basically if somebody from out of town wants to come in run a one-shot adventure. It can be in the same setting. It can be in the same campaign, or it can be totally different. Have people bring different characters or let them resurrect an old character that died at some point and let them play that character again, if they especially liked them and, you know, whatever, and just have fun. Don't try to integrate that person who's going to be there one time into your main campaign. Cause that's probably not going to work out right. I will say I disagree with every part of that advice, but that's okay. I mean, uh, but because I, I run a campaign with a very drop-in, drop-out approach right. to characters, right? Like my father-in-law uh, has played two or three sessions of my campaign because that's as often as he's been in town during mm-hmm. a session. But he's got a character that he plays in my campaign because I have a large roster, and you just you you play if you're there, mm-hmm. right? Right, but that's that's a different situation for two reasons number one he's done it more than once right uh sure but i didn't know that the first time true uh but also you're playing a more west marches style kind of game right which Uh, is not uh, the assumption here which i i'm not invalidating what you're saying you're absolutely right and it's interesting that they don't have that discussion in here right but especially because that was what gary did right like yeah, all of which is also why I mean, campaign you know, logs make it really clear that West Marches right. was what he was doing. Yeah, yeah, and and that's also why a lot of times he had you know ten or twelve people at the table. Yep, because it's come one, come all. The more the merrier, and that's also why the the idea of the caller <laughs> was was a real thing, right? 
Um, because how do you deal with 12 people yeah. at the table? You can't hear them all necessarily. I mean, I, I do know actually some people who have done that, but anyway, um, it's just interesting because this advice on this particular page of this book, it has a very specific type of campaign in mind and it's giving advice based on that kind of campaign. And so if it's not your type of campaign that you're running, right? Lots of people run more episodic campaigns. They're not necessarily West marches, but they're, it's like an, like a TV show every time, right? It's the same PCs, but they're doing a different sort of monster of the week kind of thing yep. every, every time that's not West marches. Cause it's not right. But, right. but it's sort of in the middle between West marches and a long-term campaign with just those same PCs. Right. Um, and that this advice doesn't apply to that either. Right. This advice only kind of applies to a very small portion of the kind of types of campaigns, but it is probably the one that was considered the most standard style of campaign for, you know, a very long time. So I get why it's focused that way. It's just, again, something that makes it feel a little bit dated. And it's weird saying that because as you mentioned, right, that's how Gary ran. It was all basically West marches, right? Yep. So for this to feel dated because it doesn't address that (laughs) type of campaign is kind of weird, but you know, whatever. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's fine. Um, which brings us to uh, the end of chapter one. Yes, um, chapter two. Yep. Uh, styles uh, of adventure play, uh, and this is the kind of section where, uh, th- for a fair amount of it, if all you did was read the um, the, the lowest level headers, mm-hmm. you would get most of the idea, and right, you can you can keep going. That doesn't mean the text is wasted, just you right. can get good ideas from this going at quite a speed. Yeah. And so so let's actually talk about those. So the first heading is general delivery. Yep. And under it, it has the following ideas. Don't manipulate. Never favor characters. Never punish characters. Never choose sides. And always maintain game balance. Yep. Now we're we're going to come back and talk about this stuff, but then it has styles of play, and under that it has hack and slash. Then it has the thinker, the righteous role player, historical simulation, and a silly game, Monty Hall style games, novel style play, war gamers, and political play, and then eclectic. <laughs> right. And so let's. So, so, and then it's kind of, then it moves on to a different sort of preparation topic. So let's go back to the beginning of this chapter, general delivery. The main, the main point of this is maintaining neutrality. That the DM's job is to maintain neutrality, to, to walk a fine line between being an enemy versus being a benevolent guide versus being someone who is giving them a lot of benefits and props and money versus being someone who's too stingy. There's, there's a big focus on neutrality here. Yep. Um, and a lot of this gets summed up with different language now, but all of the things you're supposed to do have stayed right where they are. Mm -hmm. I I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't think any of the fundamental points that are getting made here uh, are changed if you phrase it as be a fan of the players. Right. Right. Because yep. fans like to see the character get threatened and challenged so that the character will respond interestingly. Right. 
Right. So. And it also says what happens if you go too far being a fan. You don't want to give them too much because then it's no longer fun. It's going to get real boring. If they get everything and you always fudge everything in their favor, then it's not, it's also not fun. Right. Um, One of the things is uh, in the don't manipulate section, it, it actually brings up the illusion of choice, although it doesn't refer to it as that it says uh, a good DM will not force his players to make decisions that match his goals and desires Even if the sequencing of scenarios is primarily pre-planned, arrange events so that the players believe that they are choosing their characters' actions and directions. So it's interesting because it says don't manipulate. In other words, don't force your hand and, and basically tell the players your PCs have to go here. But... It does say wherever they go, just rearrange what you had planned so that they eventually meet all the things that they need to meet anyway. Yep. But while you're doing so, make them think that they chose all of that. Right. It's it's very much you know, make them think it was their idea. And mm-hmm. I mean there's definitely a perspective on good sandbox play, which is um making sure that there are fun dinosaur bones to find no matter where you dig. Right. And uh, I, I certainly subscribe to that. I imagine you do. Oh yeah, of course. Yes, of course. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I, but I guess my thing is, um, whether you are having to succumb to providing the illusion of choice or whether you're doing a true sandbox is very different thing. Right. Yeah. Cause the illusion of choice is, well, here's your choice. This is a horrible example because it's not really a choice that matters, but you can go left or right. And to the left is the mountains and to the right is where you think the old shrine is. And then wherever, whichever one they go, they have the orc encounter, right? Sure. You gave them the illusion of choice, but it really didn't matter what they chose. That's a bad illusion of choice, right? A good illusion of choice is it really did matter what they chose. Right. So, yeah. But you need to signpost, you know, if you take the road into the mountains, there are orcs there, mm-hmm. uh, right. but the, there, there are orc raiding parties down toward the shrine. So do you want to encounter orcs that are in their home environment and are, are dug in, or do you want to encounter orcs that are moving fast and striking hard? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like, and then that, it that's does- two ways to right. yeah. have your same mm-hmm. orc encounter. Right. Mm-hmm. with right. only some terrain differences. It's mm-hmm. fine. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, it doesn't go into that great of an example, <laughs> right? Sure. Um, it just assumes you know what it's talking about. Um, anyway, so then it gets to never favor characters. And it this actually has something in it it, it, it it warns against doing something in here that I still see happen after all these years. I still see it so often, or I see questions about what to do when something goes wrong with it. And that is this character favoritism also applies to the creation of adventures. Try not to build a quest around a single character. If that character dies, then the quest is over for the entire party and all the time invested is wasted. I see conversations about this all the time where 
an entire adventure or a large portion of a campaign is focused on one PC. And if that PC, if the PC dies or if that player, something happens and they end up moving away or whatever, now your entire adventure has a hole in it. I see this. I see conversation about this all the time. So I'm going to tell a story from a fourth edition game I ran. Um, there was a particular magic item, a particular suit of armor that the tiefling warlord in the party just really super wanted. And he wanted to do whatever it took to chase that down. And so I introduced this, you know, uh, basically traveling goblin market that would trade him the, the suit of armor. It's just the people running the market wanted this other cabal of wizards, you know, wiped from the face of the earth because those guys were jerks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he gets paid up front with a magic item that gets a job in Canada. And he, he takes his magic item and walks and the rest of the party is still on the hook to kill those wizards. <laughs> I, I assure you that, that player has been in no way forgiven. <laughs> Uh, that would have been 11 years ago. Uh, wow. 11 and a half years ago, roughly. Not forgiven. <laughs> no, no, sir. Hilarious. Oh, my God. Yeah. 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 Um, so this actually happened to me a little bit recently. And I say a little bit because uh, it wasn't a huge thing. Um but in my D&D Brave game, one of the players leaves. Mm-hmm. And uh, the there were only four players, only four PCs in the, in the first place. So when one player leaves, if you had structures in the campaign that were focused on each PC then whatever that PC's, whatever that portion of that campaign that was focused on that PC is now unresolvable. Right. Yep. And, and so it's, that's a tough thing to have happen. And the difference between this and what they're describing in this book is that wasn't the only PC. Everything wasn't hanging on that PC and it was completely focused on that PC. And then that PC was suddenly gone. Um, but it was a small group of four PCs and each one of them had a major sort of connection to everything that was going on and to some different sort of resources and, and higher entities that could help them, right. Or negotiate with them or that they could rely on. And so then when one of the PCs is gone, it makes it so that actually their, their usable resources now has been lowered in a substantial way. Uh, And so it kind of changed how the end of that campaign could have played out. It definitely reduced the options in terms of what can possibly happen now. Um, Because I'm not the type of DM who will be like, well, this character went and did that off screen and went and did that. And here's this and here's that. It's kind of like, no, I'm not going to, you know, have that happen because then it's almost like playing a dmpc and i it's my mary sue right well you know you guys really screwed the pooch but hey this person showed up and and you know saved you and that's kind of not how i want to run the game you know yeah i can see that um like because i have all of this player churn but 
um, I'm running a, a large roster game, mm-hmm. um, I do have a pretty fair amount of, um, you know, yes, that character is still around the guild hall. Uh, they occasionally come up in the narrative. Uh, they aren't off accomplishing the badass stuff. They're handling the tedious stuff that you guys don't want to deal with in the first place kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which is fair. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, Anyway, so never punish. I also want to comment on um, mm-hmm. not like centering an adventure around a single character. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. That one I actually really struggle with because um, I get to a certain point in campaigns where, like, uh, because I'm not running, you know, published adventures with a definite end for the most part. It'll be something more like, okay, so now what do you want to do? Well, I have mm-hmm. this goal that I wanted to pursue. Can can I pursue that? And it, it's the kind of thing that needs an adventure. Well, right. sure. Like the rest of the party is willing to go along with that, but they're doing it because you asked. Right. Right. Not because of their own personal investment. And right. um, this basically works, though. I've I've learned that I need to be better about. Like saying, okay, our, our past adventure or two were focused on your goals. Uh, let's make sure that this next player's goals are the ones that we pursue for this next thing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and that'll be fine. Um, yeah, just yeah. like you definitely can do, sort of that almost um, Mass Effect style loyalty mission structure where no this this adventure is all about you know alice's character this week mm-hmm. um and it, it might be three or four weeks of completing that one adventure right. but maybe that really helps the other characters in the party connect to alice in a new way right yeah it, yeah and mm-hmm. so a lot of the characters characterization that's developing that time is about those bonds that if you can make that work it's awesome because everybody loves a good found family story. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Well, anytime that you can uh, run some adventures and there's a focus on a player or a different player or, or PC or different PC, it actually causes bonds to form between those PCs. Right. Because not even intentional and it's not because they're sitting at the campfire and talking and getting close and all that. It's because the more that they, that their character goes on an adventure with the other character, it creates a shared memory between those players. Hey, remember when so-and-so, when we went and did this, right? And that actually creates a bond between the players and the characters. And so it actually sort of strengthens all of that kind of idea Yep. Especially if it's focused on one of the PCs, right? Oh, we went and we had to do this thing for, you know, whatever. Like uh, in my D&D brief game, when they all went to go, you know, rescue Imran's mom, like, you know, they were they, they were fully focused on, hey, this is for this character and we're kind of taking the back seat, but that's okay because this is a really important mission. We got to get it done. And then once that happened, it's like, okay, now everything else, we can step back from that. Now we need to look at what what else is going on. Um, and it created a real bond because then that character, Imran, knew that she could trust those other PCs implicitly. 
even if they said something that sounded crazy, she knew she could trust them because they helped her rescue her mom. Yep. So if we hadn't had that particular focused mission, she wouldn't have necessarily learned that. And later on, when it comes to the question of, can I really trust these people? It might have been a more wavery, well, I think so, you know. So anyway. Uh, so the next set of advice is never punish characters. I think that's good. You know, I'm not sure we need to say say much right. more about uh, that. My only thing on this is that I wish that it drew a clearer line between punishing a character and actions having consequences. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Like, yes. Like bad things yeah. going to happen to characters. That's life. Mm-hmm. And right. those, some of those are going to be consequences for actions. Even heroic actions can have negative consequences. Mm-hmm. So, right. like, I'm not punishing your character. This is just the natural consequence. It's just of the natural flow actions. of the narrative. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I need you to be cool with this. Is right. is the flip side of that that is also valid. But yes, right. don't don't go around with like punishment as your core goal. Right. I mean, and so here's the way it words it, to be fair. It says the DM may dislike a player or a character in his campaign. It happens. Avoid the temptation to single out disliked characters for special unpleasantness. Right. Unless and- the character has done something to warrant punishment and the outcome would advance the storyline. Right. And so it yep. almost it almost gets to where you want it to be, but it's not clear at all. Yeah. Well, and this is a, a, also a place where you know, do the work to be a fan of the characters pays mm-hmm. off, right? Right. Well, like, and so also the idea of disliking a player at your table. Yeah, try not to do that. Is hard for me. Not because I don't think it happens, because I think in a con game, it's entirely possible to, over the course of a con game, decide... I don't really like that player. And if I knew them in like on my regular day to day life, I probably wouldn't hang out with them. That's possible. But this section otherwise has been written in the idea of the typical long-term campaign at a home game. Yeah. Um, So honestly, it's, it's possible to be in a long-term game with someone and your friendship with them has complicating factors right now. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Like yeah. that that that's pretty real to me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like if if you're running to that, then try to do the work to like, separate your your mental approach to the character from your mental approach to the player, so that you can right. be a fan. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, which is followed by the next bit of advice, which is never choose sides, which is in the same kind of, you know, in the same vein as never punish characters. Also don't punish the entire party. Right. Right. Um, you know, uh, good advice again. Um, like you said, maybe not strong enough on the, but their actions have consequences. Right. Yep. Uh, you know, cause the thing about actions having consequences is a world building thing for, in my mind, right. Actions having consequences means that the players aren't just uh, a separate group of entities in the world with plot armor on and never, ever get reacted to. 
right? They, the fact that there is a consequence for something they did or said or implied, right, means that the world around them is a, is a, a quote, living world, right? And so that actually is an element of a good game for me, in my opinion. If there are no consequences, then what's the point of anything? Right. And just all you can say is con- consequences flow completely organically from the narrative. Punishment mm-hmm. doesn't. Right. Right. So um, then the next section is a, a little bit controversial. So I'm going to read the section for the audience. It, it's, it's header says, always maintain game balance. And here's what it says. Present the characters with challenges that are neither too easy nor overly difficult. This is best illustrated in combat situations. If a party enters a room of orcs, adjust the number of orcs present to match the fighting ability of the party. If it is a strong party, increase the number and upgrade their weapons. For a weak party, reduce the number and arm them with inferior weapons. Challenges which are too easy to overcome can be boring, while those which are too difficult will cause the players to become discouraged. Remember, even low-level monsters can be dangerous foes if played cleverly. And so, I have one thing to say about this piece of advice. It's completely ignoring the ebb and flow of an adventuring day and relating only to an individual encounter and assuming that every single individual encounter should be balanced exactly for the current situation and state of the party. And that way lies madness. That's the exact opposite of a living world Mm -hmm. that has consequences. And, you know, as an old school player who, dare I say, enjoys the, some of the resource management aspects of that style of play, this, this set of sentences (laughs) in this section is complete anathema to the way that I generally play not to say that i specifically you know the thing is i understand what it's trying to say right like but if you're really letting the choices of the players matter if they ignore all of my clues about how there's a red dragon in that mountain and they travel to that mountain and go see the red dragon and they're only third level i'm not going to suddenly balance that encounter for the third level party right sure it's it's just about telegraphing what like the right threat level, right? Um, you know, right? But but uh, this as much section, as possible, like, let the consequence fall on NPC so they can see how gory it was and decide right. the better part of valor. Right, but this section doesn't say that. It says yeah. no, I, balance I an individual. I, no, no, no. I, encounter, I agree. That's right. That's lacking here for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is where I uh, I feel like this is I, I'm of two minds, right? Because I think that <clears throat> part of it is what what we were talking about earlier about the the second edition DMG having a much softer tone than, and I don't mean that as a derogatory statement, but having a, a much more sort of collegial or or uh, or 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 um, 
benevolent almost tone, right? Trying to get that tone to be projected from the DM to the players, right? Much more so than, you know, Gygax's first edition DMG, which was really adversarial in some parts, right? So this is almost going too far in the other direction, right? Always balance every encounter doesn't make for a good game either, but that's what this says to do. Yep. Yep. I feel you. And Uh, that leads us to styles styles of of play. play. Yeah. Um, So, (laughs) yep. So, so I feel like I, I, do kind of want to cruise through this. Uh, this, like, the, the styles of play section, like, is so close to just a perspective shift on types of players mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that right. um, it, it's really types of DMs, I guess you could say. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, so I have a couple of comments that I want to make about specific sections. For sure. For sure. So, so we can we can breeze through it because um, I don't. There's not a ton um, compared to the last uh, section where I highlighted a bunch of stuff. Right. I'm not uh, trying to cut you off yeah. here. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, um, no. But I appreciate you're trying to move us along. So, so here's here's the thing. One thing that I noticed that it says an important element of style selection is maintaining a balance between puzzle solving, role playing, and combat. Yep. So we get a three tiered idea, right? And that role playing is what you what you get. That's your social interaction, right? So you have yep. combat, social interaction, and solving puzzles, which could be likened to exploration, right? Mm-hmm. So here you have the three pillars: exploration, role playing, and combat. Yep. Or exploration, social, and combat. So that was interesting to to read that from way back in 1990. Um, And then the next thing I want to point out is an awesome alliteration abounds. Let me read this sentence to you. After the characters have killed the kobolds, trashed the trolls, bashed the bugbears, decimated the the doppelgangers, wailed on the were-rats, and wasted the race, trounced the troglodytes, obliterated the ogres, and creamed the carrion crawlers. So... How many times can you <laughs> write an alliteration with a group of creatures? I just loved that. I thought that was great. Um, you could tell that, in other words, the author is having fun with writing this text. Yep. Which I appreciate myself. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I am sympathetic to the desire to revive the Anglo-Saxon traditions of alliterative poetry <laughs> that were most recently seen in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Uh, and, and have really fallen out of favor since sort of English took. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is this a tangent? This is a tangent. That's okay. <laughs> um, right. Um, like, uh, uh, the one thing I want to say, say to your point about the, the pillars of play yes. is that um, one of the really nice perspective shifts that has come about since this was released is that you should be revealing character in what you could recognize as role-playing, not just in social scenes, but also through action in combat and in exploration. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. You can, if you are working at it and thinking about it, you can reveal just as much about your character, you know, and 
uh, how they get through a fight scene or you know, cross a, a chasm as how they you know, talk to, I don't know, the merchant or whatever, mm-hmm. whoever they need to talk to. Uh, and that's a lesson that can stand to be taught a little better. Right. I guess is what I want to yeah. say. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Um, I, I, what I find interesting about this section, this, this whole last section here about styles of play is really, it all comes down to the last choice, right? Which is the yep. eclectic game where it says eclectic games borrow elements from a number of diverse sources in this sense, it's the best style of play since at various times it partakes of all the other styles mentioned. In other words, the best way to do it is a good mix, but I will note that under the righteous role player choice or description, it says this should be a preferred playing style and is usually incorporated with other styles since it is essential that a fair amount of role-playing take place in order to create a believable game. I think that's a great sentence, except that it starts with, this should be a preferred playing style. Because the whole point of the section is to talk about all these different playing styles without judging any one of them. And then it says one of these is the best. And then it says, oh, well, we really the best is one that mixes all of them. Right. <laughs> right. Which is, I mean, well, that's fine. Right. It's just a quirk of the writing. Um, but right. and, re- and really, like, that's what it says. The kind of player they're trying to talk to with Righteous Role Player is what um, later texts are going to think of as the theatrical actor. Right. Yeah. The thespian. Right. Yeah. Right. And, right. you know, that's maybe taking this phrasing a little farther, but it's mm-hmm. trying to get at the same idea. Yeah. Yeah. I do also like um, the way that it there, there's there's quite a large section on political play, which is really mostly talking about like political intrigue, right? In your game, I do actually like. There's one sentence in there that really sort of states what is great about an intrigue based game. It says this. It says there are often a mirage of subplots, and treachery is the ever present danger. Like that is a perfect little sub sentence that describes exactly what's great about political or, or intrigue based adventures. As long as the players are into it. Yep. Right. As long as the players are into it. So, you know, that's good. Yep. Um, and the, uh, to, to steal another sentence, Political factions within a town, dungeon, or country can be a reservoir of potential problems for a group to solve. Really, it's highlighting, hey, if you need just a bottomless well of content, this one's mm-hmm. this is one of the strongest options out there. Right, right. Because it's about people wanting things. Just, mm-hmm. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so do we want to move on to how to prepare? Yeah, I think I think we can hit up how to prepare. Okay. Um, so how to prepare starts with uh, describing two scenarios of a person who, for whatever reason, didn't get to prep very well. Um, yeah. and, it, and it says, successful gaming is more than an impromptu performance in a fabricated world for a group of individuals who just happen to be available and interested in the AD and D game, good I mean, gaming sometimes. experiences. I mean, sometimes, Some, right? sometimes. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I have definitely had perfectly fine experiences that were just, huh, 
I, I got something right. in the seat of well, my pants. Let's go. Well, there's right. Well, there's a reason I'm reading this particular thing. It says good gaming experiences require creative preparation. And then it mentions it's possible to overprepare. But there's a reason that I'm bringing that up because later, later on in the same chapter, it says it has a whole like whole section on winging it. And it says winging it is the true test of, uh, of the DM's design and storytelling skills and often leads to the best adventures for both players and DMs. <laughs> and so at the beginning of the chapter, it tells you, you absolutely must prep because successful gaming relies on it. It's more than impromptu performance. It's more than winging it. You have creative preparation you have to do, blah, blah, blah. And then it ends with, you know, sometimes the best sessions are ones you couldn't prep for. <laughs> yep. Right. Uh, Which, like, uh, you know. <laughs> even even when I've you know, had to completely wing it for a session, um, and it's gone well, I can see places where, you know, if I had had some idea what the players are going to do and 15 minutes of prep time, I right. can really sharpen that up. Right. Well, but, and you know, as well as I do, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a off the cuff DM too. Right. But the reason sure. I can do that is because if I'm in my homebrew world, I already know all the lore and yeah. I know so many things that are happening and I, I can easily come up with new lore on the fly or new factoids on the fly and then quickly relate them back to whatever else is going on. And so that's the creative preparation, right? Is that I already know the lore. I already have a good foundation of what's actually going on in the world and what, what, who the gods are and how much influence they have and who the main factions are and how much influence they have and all that stuff. That's already known. I don't need to prep that anymore. That's already part of the, what I, whatever I know. So for an individual session, I could run completely improv session as long as it's in my homebrew world. Right. And it would still be fun. Yep. I agree with that. And that's kind of what they're saying, but I just thought it was really funny that they started with you have to prep like it's it goes through this whole right. thing about everything to prep and it it talks about dividing it preparation into six segments which i thought the word using the word segment was a nod back to first edition initiative and and you uh, know it's still and, in second ed oh, oh yeah it's true yeah uh, i didn't play as much second ed but you know so it's like it tell it talks about all these things you need to do and how to be prepared and you know allowing yourself time to to design all of these and getting organized um and and all, all a lot of it's really good advice um but i just feel like some of the earlier parts of the the section are worded pretty strongly to like scare you into thinking you need to do all these things and then it ends with the whimper of well you know wing and it's okay too <laughs> right so you know I, I, that sounds to me like maybe uh connor's and jake argued yeah maybe or just an editing choice, right? Like they, they yeah. if they didn't specifically agree, then how do you edit it to put both of them in there? That's what you do, right? Yeah. yeah. You, you start out with one voice and you kind of end almost with another. Um, but, you know, this, this section actually also has some very concrete, you know, bullet pointed really to get organized. Here's some things you can do to get organized. And, um, while it feels dated because it doesn't include any kind of computer anything, and a lot of people use programs on their computers now to organize, it actually is some very helpful advice if you didn't have a computer available on how to 
separate out and organize your gaming materials so that you're just very quickly able to access everything during a game. Um, and then I love this. I, I love there's another piece of advice. Uh, when you have purchased or borrowed a, a, a published adventure, um, the information is present, right? The information on how to prep the game is present, but maybe in such abundance that important details can be overlooked. Boy, Make does notes. that check out. Boy, does that check out. Make notes in the margins or on those little adhesive-backed notepapers. They couldn't say Post-its to highlight details or scenario alterations, right? I mean, that checks out maybe more in 5th edition than some other editions because every every adventure we're getting that's published by the producers uh, is a, you know, 300 or so page hard, hardback. And yep. so so full of information, so well, so full of information. Well, Sam, what I, what I the, the problem with this section is that um, I know that your powers of retention are as wet as a warthog's backside. <laughs> but as thick as you are, pay attention. My words are a matter of pride. I'll be here all night, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tip your waiters. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, try uh, the veal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good tonight. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm not actually bagging on sand. That would be weird, but. You know, it's a section on be prepared. It's the, yeah. never mind. We're good. <laughs> We're okay. We're all right. Um, and then the passage of time, I, I, it gets a lot of, of, uh, of, of, t- of word count here. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not really surprised that uh, timekeeping is regarded as important in D&D. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, right. Right. Um, and then uh, alternative scenarios, right? Um, accommodating adventurers who, who choose paths other than the one the DM would prefer. And it even points out squashing them like insects is not a particularly mature solution. <laughs> this is if they go off the rails, right? Don't just squash them like bugs. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, this session is this section is fine. It's fine. It's OK. It's fine. Um, like, I I guess I know the things I'd want to add to it now. That's not really Mm -hmm. a fair nitpick. It hasn't been a fair nitpick at any point, but like, uh, from, from the lofty heights of 2021, um, the lightless pits of 2021, whatever, um, wanting to see that talk about you know, what if they quit the adventure? Okay, so you have a campaign setback. Like, whatever whatever the bad thing was that was threatened, whatever the bad stakes were, that happens now. Mm-hmm. Move forward. By the way, set your stakes so that you can move forward. Right. Right. Yeah, some, some parts of this book present a, a, something that might become a problem, and they only offer one solution or one suggested solution. And sometimes that solution isn't perfect, right? Or, or is dated. And so it's really obviously not matching sort of today's ethos. Yep. Um, also the, um, 
the the last section of this is about player preparation, and it it actually highlights uh, an issue with me, and that is that there's a little bit of inconsistent layout here in the book because this player preparation section would have been much better as a bulleted list. Yeah. Um, instead, it's written as a paragraph when really you could just you know it would be better as a bulleted list so that you could you know make the suggestions easier to read and maybe incorporate into your table culture or you know ha- give as a handout you know to your to your players here's how to here's how you should prepare for each session. Um, it's not a terribly long list or paragraph, but it would have been better as a bulleted list. And I think there are other sections in this book, if, if, if not particularly in this chapter, because they do have some bulleted pieces in this chapter um, where that, that would have actually served the information much better than just a paragraph. So yep. um, uh, in the winging it section, it actually gives a really good piece of advice that I want to highlight here, because as I just said, some of the advice they give is like, eh, okay. Um, or it's like, eh, it feels dated, but it's kind of close. Here is a really great piece of advice. It basically says, um, you know, uh, when you're winging it, if, if they go off the rails or if somebody calls an impromptu session or something happens and you didn't know you were going to be running or what, for whatever reason, you didn't get to prep and you're winging it. One thing you can do is while you're, while you're sort of running this by the seat of your pants, you can foreshadow a future campaign event by giving the characters a close but inconclusive brush with the major evil in the world or the major power in the campaign or, or whatever. And that lets them experience or see or witness something that is out of their league that they know they're not going to engage in yet. But now it gives them an idea of some higher stakes for right. what what's happening. And that's a fantastic piece of advice. Right. As long as the thing is powerful enough that they they don't conclude. Hey, I guess we're supposed to fight this thing, right? And then they do, and well, yeah, yeah, of course, yes, yes, exactly. But in other words, they at least give the advice of even if you're winging it and you didn't really have anything prepped, you can still work in the major themes of your campaign yep. right into that you know session where you're flying by the seat of your pants. Yep, I think that's very good advice. Uh, yeah. It'd be good advice, you know, without winging it with, you know, you right. should write this into the course of your prepped adventure. But exactly, know. exactly. So let's end this for tonight. Uh, I feel like it's a great place to stop and we can come back and, and visit the next two or three chapters uh, next time. And so uh, happy holidays, wear your mask. I hope you're enjoying some time with the family and loved ones and that everybody is healthy and safe. Um, and Brandis, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me at tribality.com. I'm on Twitter at Brandis Stoddard. My personal blog is brandisstoddard.com and my Patreon is Brandis Stoddard. I really hope that you in the distant future of uh, Christmas day of 2021 are maybe around some sort of corner with COVID and Delta variant and Lambda variant. And please let there not be more variants that I have to learn the Greek letters of just please. (laughs) This is my hope from the distant past. We want you to be safe. We want you to be healthy. Have a good holiday season. Thanks. Thanks.